You are listening to the Holmes Avenue Baptist Church Podcast. To learn more about Holmes Avenue or how you can join the mission, visit us online at holmesavenue.com. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. That was pretty good. You guys are getting well-trained by this point. I appreciate that. Thank you. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful that you would worship with us this morning. We're going to be continuing our series, I Am, looking at some of the I Am statements of Jesus. Today, we're going to be looking at John 14, verses 1 through 14. You can go ahead and flip to that. It'll be on the screen for you as well. We're going to look at a passage that may be familiar to you. If you've been a part of the local church for any number of years, you've probably read this passage or have heard a sermon on this, specifically looking at Jesus making this proclamation, I am the way, I am the truth, the life. And we hear these words, and as we begin to look at them, We so often look at these words in kind of a cold, perhaps unfeeling manner of, well, Jesus is just stating a fact, right? Like, I am the way. I'm the only way to get to heaven. I am the only way to truth. I'm the only way to life. And that is true. But I believe as we study this section of Scripture, as we study the I am statements, that these are not merely intended to be cold theological facts for us, but rather these are promises that Jesus is making to his people. These are promises that he's making to his people that I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God that you've been searching for. I am the Messiah that has been promised to his people. And I promise you, if you place your faith in me, it will not be in vain. If you trust in me, if you trust in me, you'll find truth and life. You'll experience the resurrection. These are things of good news for us. But as we consider this idea of what a promise is, promises are really worth only about as much as the person making them, right? We, we've all been there. We've had people in our life who, yeah, they make plans and set dates with us. And when the time comes, where are they? They're nowhere to be found, right? There are some people when they make a promise, we simply go, I believe it when I see it, Right? I'll believe it when I see it. When they show up, that's when I'll start to believe that they're going to keep their word. You know, likewise, we live in that way with just our own our lives. I know my children are very clear that they can't remember anything that you tell them. But if you make a promise about them getting ice cream, you better believe they are going to remember that till the day they die. I mean, without fail. But you promised we would have dessert. Well, it's lunchtime. We've got time, guys. Relax. I promise we'll make this work. It's just how we work. That's how we function. But what does this have to do with Jesus? What does this have to do with these I am statements? Why is this actually important? As we're studying these I am statements, we're going to see that these are promises from God himself to his people. And as we consider this idea of can these promises be kept, we recognize this truth. That if a promise is only worth as much as the person who's making it, that if Jesus is who he says he is, then these promises can be trusted, they can be rested in, and they will be fulfilled. Simply put, when we look at these ideas of the I am statements, these promises from Jesus, we're simply asking the question, is Jesus worthy of trust? Will he, can he fulfill these promises he's making? As we study this passage, as we look throughout the width and breadth of the Bible, I would submit to you that not only is every promise made here in the scriptures fulfilled, but that Jesus is indeed trustworthy because he is the one who is going to be fulfilling all of these promises. 
So as we look at the text, we're going to see this promise is displayed in a few different ways for us. If you're taking notes, and I hope you are, I want you to put down this first point. We'll read as we go, but I want to write this first point, that we see Jesus offers us a promise of comfort. Look with me at verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. So let's stop right here. We, we enter into this passage and a familiar refrain, this, this house with many rooms that we've heard. And Jesus is beginning to offer some comfort to his disciples here. Now, as we enter into this chapter, you might be wondering, why, why do the disciples need comfort? What's, what's happening? What's going on? And as we look at this section of Scripture here in the book of John, this is actually occurring during Jesus' final week of life here. That This section is during that final week where he has entered into Jerusalem. He's had that triumphal entry, what we typically celebrate on Palm Sunday of Jesus entering into Jerusalem the last week of his life. And he's going through certain statements, certain experiences. You'll actually hear a lot of that this week during Holy Week. Uh, we'll actually have some videos on Facebook that you'll be able to watch and see some of these different experiences from the scriptures that local pastors have kind of shared what God is teaching us through that. But during this week, his disciples have heard repeatedly, he said many times, that I am going to go away. I am going to give up my life. This thing is going to end, but it is going to begin something new, something special, something that is absolutely going to blow your mind. Well, his disciples, they don't take that very well. Throughout this experience of this last week, they've heard Jesus say these words and they're thinking things like, well, can't we go with you? Why can't we follow you this place, Jesus? And Jesus is over here thinking, well, because you can't resurrect yourself. Like, that's why you can't come with me. There's something that only I can do that you can't do. Maybe they're concerned about what does this mean about their futures, right? They've followed Jesus for three years. They've given up everything. If he's going to go away, then what are they left with? Maybe they're worried about their friend Jesus, right? Like, gosh, he keeps saying these things and I'm a little concerned about him. Like, is this, does he really believe this is going to end poorly for him? Like, he's Jesus. He's the guy we've been waiting for. Whatever they're feeling here, they're confused, they're hurting. And Jesus offers some words of encouragement to them. That's what these words are here. These first four verses are intended to encourage us, to allow us to see the goodness of God in midst of trials and difficulties. See, his encouragement here is not one of just simple factual statements of, hey, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again. Hey, I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to be beaten and scourged and it's going to be a horrible experience, but I'm going to walk out of that grave. No, he offers this heart-to-heart -heart conversation to his followers. Now he looks at them and he says, I know it's going to happen. And I know it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard for me. It's going to be hard for you guys. And as you experience this, I want you to do something for me. I want you to trust in God. That's what he tells them here in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. You can translate that word believe as trust 
in God. He said, believe in God. Believe also in me. But if you've seen these things I've done, if you've walked with me for these three years, you know who I am. Rest in this fact that I am the God of the universe come to dwell in human flesh. Do not let your heart be troubled because I promise you things will be okay. The story has a good ending. This is good news for us. This is good news for us as Christ followers because we read this, we're ultimately betting our lives upon this truth, aren't we? We're betting our lives upon this truth that Jesus is who he says he is. And sometimes we can look at this and go, well, that's just a basic theological fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he went and died a death that we deserved, that he rose again and he's sitting beside the Father, interceding on our behalf. We can look at that with some sense of detachment, but what this truly means is that our God cares deeply about us. Warren Wearsby describes it this way. He says, when you're sick, what do you want? You want a doctor. You don't want a biology book. (laughs) What is that going to do for you? When you're in legal trouble, when you're being sued, what do you want? You want a lawyer, not a book of laws, because why is that going to help you? Likewise, when you're facing this final enemy this enemy that is called death. You don't want a cold theological fact. You want the risen Savior. What brings you comfort is not those cold theological facts, but simply this truth, that those things are true and our Savior lives. This is what brings us comfort in this life. We're ultimately resting on this assurance that Jesus lives today. That tomb is empty. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. There are a whole lot of tombs they can tell you who's resting in there. And when you get to the place where they believe Jesus' tomb was, let me tell you something. I've seen the pictures. I've seen the video. There's nothing there. It's empty. This isn't just a trick. This isn't a lie. This is truth that Jesus left that grave and lives even now. We're resting on this assurance that Jesus will come through. And in the end, when death claims us, we'll be united with him for all eternity. We will live again with him. You see, it's because of passages like this that we know we do not hope in vain. We rest in this confidence that Jesus will fulfill his promises to his people. This is our comfort in our time of need, that Jesus is not going to abandon us. It tells us here that even as he's going to leave, he's going to leave for a purpose and return for us. You see, what Jesus is trying to display for them, this basis of trust that they're supposed to have is not to be found in things of this earth. They're not supposed to trust in God because they've gotten some nice things or they have a good life. They're not supposed to trust in God just because they've walked with Jesus and they've touched his hands, they've seen him in the flesh. They're not to trust in these things just because they've received earthly praise, earthly honor. Rather, they're to trust in these things because they have seen what Jesus has done. They are to trust in what Jesus is doing for them. See, he tells us here that he's preparing a home for us in eternity. You maybe remember the song, there's a big, big house with lots of room. This is what we're pointing to, this beautiful fact that there is a dwelling place for us after this life. 
This life isn't it. We live this life. We honor and glorify God. We live it to its fullest. But our story doesn't end when our bodies are lowered in a grave. Why? Because we have an eternal soul that is going to be united with the King of kings and the Lord of lords for all eternity when we pass. Because we trust in Jesus. See, he's pointing to this idea of a home. And, and maybe you're like the disciples. They think it's a physical home. Maybe it's a nice hill in Galilee. Maybe it's this nice plot of land he's got with some olives and grapes. No, he's pointing to this idea of an assurance that God cares for his children. And he is not going to fail them in this life or the next. This is the assurance we have. That Jesus isn't going to let us down. He is in the promise-keeping business. And these things will end well for us. It's this fact that the house has many rooms. It gives us hope. It gives us hope in this life. I want to just assure you of something. That Jesus is still in the business of leading people to trust in His Father's name. Jesus is still in the business of saving souls and bringing people into His family. When he tells us this house in the new heavens and the new earth, it has many rooms. He's saying there's room for anybody who wants to trust and believe in Jesus. There's room for anybody who wants to call upon our Father and call him theirs. He's still able to save, and he's able to save many people because of his work upon the cross. It's why we have such an emphasis of praying for the harvest here. It's why we talk about Luke 10.2 so regularly, praying for the harvest, praying for the Lord to work and move in his people and in his world. Why? Because the God of the harvest wants to fill his house with his children. And who is he going to use to fill his house with his children? Well, he's going to use those that are his children to go to those who are not his children. To tell them this message that our God, the Jesus that we know and love, is a promise keeper. When he tells us he has come to rescue us from sin and death, he means that he is going to rescue us from sin and death if we trust in him. John Bunyan writes of this section of scripture. He writes an encouragement for us and he says this. What Jesus means here for us is that coming sinner, I now have a word for you. Be of good comfort. He will in no way fail you. He will in no way fail you. Of all men, you are the blessed of the Lord. The Father has prepared his Son to be a sacrifice for you and I. And Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Lord, has gone to prepare a place for you. What John Bunyan is pointing to here is this good news that Jesus has come to not only be a representation of his Father, but to lead us to faith in him. He has gone to pay a sacrifice upon our behalf so that we might be able to receive forgiveness. And if that story isn't good enough, he has then gone to prepare a place for us. Because not only is he going to forgive us, he wants to call us his forever. This is good news. See, this trust, this comfort, it's not just a promise that Jesus makes so he can slip away cleanly. 
It's not something he says flippantly or casually. No, he's very clear that when he goes away to prepare this place, he's coming back for us. He's giving us an assurance that he's only going away because it's truly better for us that he goes away for this. It's for our good that he's working these things together. He's going to go away to make a sacrifice for you and I. And that he's going to come back one day again to take us home. Dear brothers and sisters, is this not good news? Does this not fill your heart with joy and lead you to want to praise God for what he has done? Jesus ends this section with verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. See, these, these words, they're intended to give us some hope and further comfort here in this midst of difficult times. You see, he tells us that you know the way to where I'm going. You know how to get there. You know where we're going and you know how to get there. While I know in the following verses, the disciples seem to be a little confused about what Jesus is saying. We understand that these are words of comfort because we know how to get there. We know how the story ends. As we read through the width and breadth of the Bible, we know the way to get there is what Jesus is telling us. That if you trust in me, then you're going to make your way home. If you trust in Jesus, you will find your way home. The key to all this, the key to everything Jesus is offering and this promise he's giving us today is him. The key to all this is Jesus and Jesus alone. Nothing else is going to save us. Nothing else is going to give us hope. Nothing else is going to satisfy. The only thing that is the answer is Jesus. Simply put, this passage makes no sense. No sense if you don't trust in Jesus to be the answer for all these questions. Jesus is the only one who can bring this to culmination by going to the cross, giving up his life, laying it down upon our behalf so that we might experience forgiveness, and then going before his Father, preparing a place for us to dwell so that he could call us home one day. This is all good news. Is this not comforting to rest in this truth that our God has not abandoned us, that he's still working and moving in our lives and our world? He is still in control. This should comfort us because it shows us that our hope is not going to fail us if we've placed it in Jesus. He has gone away for a time to pay for the debt of our sin, to prepare a place for us, a dwelling place, a new heavens and a new earth. And he will return. As he's given us this promise, he's offering us not just a promise of comfort today in our present challenges, but he's also offering this promise of life eternal. That takes us to our second promise here and our second point, that we receive a promise of life. Look with me at verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. We receive this promise of life from Jesus. As he makes this promise of life to his disciples, to us, they they seem to have some confusion here. Our dear old friend who's got such a bad rap, doubting Thomas, we, we give him so much grief, but you and I both know that if we were there like Thomas, we would have said something just as ridiculous. God, we, don't, we need a road map, right? We don't know how to get there. Is this a plot of land out in Galilee? Are you taking us to a foreign land? Where are we going? How do we get there? Are we there yet? Will there be restroom breaks? We would have a hundred questions for him, just like Thomas. But really, even as we give Thomas a bad rap and we criticize him sometimes, I think he's asking a natural question, right? He's seeking some assurance as Jesus has made this promise that he goes away to prepare home for us. Thomas is looking for assurance of, okay, God, Jesus, whoever you're supposed to be, if you are who you say you are, and I believe that you are God, I want to make sure I know how to get there. Because what you're offering me is too good, right? I mean, this is everything I've ever wanted. Of course I want to know how to get there. Let me make sure that I've got my directions exactly right. Instead of giving him the address to go to, Jesus gives him a statement. It's another I am statement. And what he proclaims here is that he says that I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a beautiful statement that we can rest in because he's giving Thomas his answer. He's making very clear to Thomas, do you want to know how to get to this place? I am the way. Trust in me. And not only will I give you a way there, I will give you truth and life. Life both in this life and life eternal to come. This statement is really, it's a, it's a summation of what Jesus has come to do. This is his mission. He has come to proclaim the world, I am the way to the Father. I am the way. If you trust in me, you will experience truth. You will finally experience life. Oh, and by the way, this life you experience is eternal. The moment you cease breathing on this side of heaven, you begin dwelling with God the next breath. This is the promise he's laying before us. This is his mission to the world. This is his promise to us. What this means for us is that Jesus, as he's making these bold statements, he's saying that as I tell you this, as I make this promise, you can rest assured that it will happen. Jesus has invited us to do this thing that's so popular today. We get to fact check him. We get to go look back at his record and go, okay, Jesus, you promised these things. Did it actually happen? And we have the benefit, unlike the disciples in this moment, of being upon this side of the resurrection. We can go, yeah, I'd say it happened. That tomb is empty. There's not been a body in that tomb for centuries. 
Jesus has done all the things he said he would do. He's built his church up upon the word of God, upon himself. Yeah, check. He has said that he is sending out his people to every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Is he doing that? Yes. Is the Lord at work in our world leading people to himself as he promised? Check. We can look back upon history and go everything that Jesus promised has been fulfilled. Every promise he has made, he has spoken the truth to us. And we can rest in this truth that our God is a promise keeper. Isn't this good news? I've told you this is good news multiple times, but that is the root of the gospel. That this life is not the end. And if we trust in Jesus, we will have forgiveness and life eternal. That is the message of hope that we have. That is the message we've been called to proclaim to a lost and dying world. Now, Jesus isn't content just to leave it alone. He's got to do some further teaching and education. He uses this I am statement. And he's drawing this this picture, this direct picture, this relationship between him and the Father. He's ensuring that everybody that's around knows there's no space between him and the Father. They are on the same team. They're on the same mission. He's got authority and power from God. See, this I am statement, this is a direct calling card of God throughout the Old Testament. This is a way that God would proclaim, I am. And everybody go, oh, that's God talking. We got to pay attention now. Jesus wants his disciples to be very clear that he's here to be a reflection of his father's glory. He is showing us who God is through his word and through his deed. Now, Philip picks up on this and He says, all right, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Like, I will rest assured that I am good if you'll just show me the Father. He wants to see Father because he wants to believe in the words that Jesus is saying. He longs to see God himself appear before him because he's placing his trust in him. But he doesn't quite understand that God is indeed before him in the flesh. Simply, I think he's expecting some type of display like the transfiguration or the burning bush or or something otherworldly. Like he's expecting God to look something different than a 30-year-old carpenter with some sandals on. Like he's expecting a different picture of the Messiah. And Jesus, he gently rebukes him with the following verses. He, He tells him, how long have I been with you? You've walked with me for so long. How do you not see that I am in the Father and He is in me? He reminds him that he is seeing the Father right now through Jesus standing before him. That God Himself has come to dwell in human flesh and His name is Jesus. He also tells him that, hey, everything that I've done, all these works, all these miracles I've done, I mean, go through the laundry list of miracles, right? Turning the water into wine. We see him feed the 5,000. We see him walk on water. He's raised the dead multiple times at this point, right? I mean, he has done all kinds of incredible things. All the works, all the miracles, all the signs that I have done. They've been done by the Father's authority and power that he gave to me so that I might glorify his name to the world. So he's showing them that this unity between the Father and the Son, this is an encouragement to the disciples. It shows them that God's plan for this world will not fail. 
The plan has always been, from before we even began to sin as people, that God would always send his son on a rescue mission to redeem his people so that he could call us his children once again. Jesus ends with this encouragement to us that you should believe in the Father because you see him in me. But if your faith is frail, if, if you're feeling weak, and you find that maybe you can't trust in that, trust in the works and the miracles that he's done before you. These men have walked with Jesus for years. They know him. They've seen all the things he's done. John later tells us in this book that if he tried to write all the miracles, all the signs and wonders that God has done, that Jesus did in his time on this earth, he said, there's not enough paper in this world to cover that. I would fill libraries. I can't write enough books to show how much Jesus has done for us. Jesus is encouraging them to rest in this, that if I'm indeed God, if I am the Father, I'm dwelling within the Father's will and His authority and His power, then I've done these things by His name, and He will not let us hope in vain. If your faith is weak and you're struggling, look back on these miracles that Jesus has done and rest in this fact that God has sent His Son to show His glory to this world and that His plan is perfect and working and moving to redeem His people. These miracles are intended to show us who Jesus truly is. And you might say, well, Walter, I, I read these miracles here in the scriptures and those sound really good. And I don't feel like I, I necessarily have seen a miracle even in my own life. Well, aren't we being a little foolish when we say that? It's a miracle that our earth is positioned perfectly so that we would have life and seasons. A degree or two tilting on the axis and we wouldn't have seasons. We could not live in the majority of the earth. A few inches, either direction, to or away from the sun. We'd be too hot or too cold. We would die. Even now, we drove in cars that weigh multiple tons here, and we not only did not kill anybody, we also got here safely. We continue to draw life and breath even now. When we say we're not sure if there are miracles happening today, we're being a little foolish because every moment we draw breath is a miracle and a gift from God himself. This is the encouragement we have because our God is still working in his world. I know I say that a lot, but I say that because I need to encourage your heart and my heart to recognize this truth that God still works and moves in his people and in his world. He's not abandoned us. He's not gone away. He's still working to redeem his people. So we rest in this promise of, of life. We think, is this it? Is this all that he's given us? Because this is good news, but can it get any better? Well, in the old infomercial saying, but wait, there's more. Because he has given us a promise of answered prayer. Look at verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. 
Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The disciples are maybe still filled with some sorrow. They're still wrestling with their emotions and their feelings. But Jesus is calling them to continue to hope and to rest in him in these verses. He's moving their attention away from what has been done to what will done. He's saying, you've seen what has been done. You've walked with me in the flesh. You've seen all this. But rest assured, if you're waiting for hope, waiting for evidence, just look to the future because I promise you, I will show you everything that I've told you I will do. He gives us these words that he's done incredible things, right? We've, we know the passages about what Jesus has done. We've studied the scriptures. He's done incredible things. And he says, Greater things will be done by those that come after me. I just want you to sit in that. Jesus is saying, the best is yet to come. And he is literally God himself. He's saying, you think what I have done is impressive? Wait until you see my people live and work through the power of the Holy Spirit that we will give them. Wait until you see what they'll do. See, this passage, this idea is rooted in the mission that Jesus gives his people to spread the glory of his name to the earth. No, we're not going to do things that are greater in terms of drama or importance, perhaps, like these signs and wonders. We've never turned water into wine, right? Those are dramatic, attention-drawing things. What we have done is that we have spread the gospel around the world. That as Southern Baptists, we send out hundreds of missionaries every year, both in North America and around the world. Why? So that people who are far from God might know the name of Jesus. Just consider this fact. That in the time that Jesus has walked the earth, that he died a death that we deserve, that he rose again and went to stand at the right hand of the Father, what has happened in that time? We're trying to sum up a few thousand years of history, I know. But what has happened in that time? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. Billions upon billions of people have trusted in the name of Jesus. Billions upon billions of people follow Jesus. And I say follow because though they may have passed and they dwell in heaven, they still follow the risen Savior. No, our job is not done, but let's consider the fact that Jesus himself personally reached only a few hundred people, maybe a few thousand. And here we are, 2,000 years later, having continued the mission that he gave us, seeing billions of people throughout history respond to the good news of Jesus Christ, their Lord and Savior. I just want to assure you that this is indeed a greater work than what Jesus has done. We're not saying that we're worthy of any honor or glory greater than what Jesus has received. But he has said, look at what my people will do when I leave. And look at what his people have done. We're here because Jesus was faithful to answer the prayer of the saints many years ago. This church exists because men and women were faithful to see the work of God be done in this community 76 years ago. Many of us are here because someone in our past was faithful to share the good news of the gospel to us. This is indeed greater than anything Jesus said he would do because he has redeemed billions of people through the faithful proclamation of ordinary people like you and I.
He has built his church upon his word through the work of his people, his power, and his name. Jesus ends this passage with an encouragement towards hope that ultimately we will see our hopes and our dreams, our longings fulfilled in prayer. This prayer is going to begin with a desire to glorify the Father through the name of Jesus. This means that our prayers will be like Jesus's. They'll be echoing the Father's will as we pray for Him to move and work in our world. It culminates with this statement that He promises to answer any of our prayers that are in the will of the Father. This is good news because it means that the Lord is going to meet our needs. Wherever they are, wherever we are, He is going to meet our needs and care for us when we come to Him in prayer. But that's good news. I would submit to you that I think there's even greater news to be found there. You see, it's great news for us because it means that the Lord's going to meet ultimately our greatest need through prayer. And that is our need for forgiveness. You see, as Jesus is talking about prayer, he's talking about praying in the will of the Father. As he's talking to us, as Christians, we know that if we're praying in the will of the Father, we're praying for things that the Lord would want done. We're praying in line with his guidance and direction from the scriptures. We're praying in light of who he is and what he's doing in our world. And as Christians, that is sufficient to pray and to move and to work and to see God move and work in his world. And so as a Christ follower, I encourage you, continue praying in the will of God with the guidance of the Scriptures, praying through the Scriptures for things that God cares about. And what does God care about? People. He cares about people. Persevere in praying for people. Perhaps you're here and you're not a believer. Maybe you say, I'm not a Christ follower, and I really I, I like this idea of prayer. It sounds good that I could pray and that God would meet my needs and He would care for me. And that is true. God Himself will meet your needs, He will care for you. But your greatest need, if you're not a Christ follower, is your need for forgiveness. Your need for forgiveness. Because the truth is. That if we're looking to find hope in this way, this truth, this life, it only comes through looking to Jesus, asking for forgiveness of our sin. That's called repentance. Laying down our sin before him, turning away from these things so that we might receive forgiveness. Trusting in him and living this full life he's promised both here in this present reality of earth and that future day in the new heavens and new earth with him. So I would submit to you that if you're here and you're not a Christ follower, the only thing that you need to be praying for, the only concern you need to have is about your standing before the Lord. Have you received His forgiveness? We're going to have a time here in a few moments where you'll be able to pray and ask God whatever it is you desire to ask Him. And my hope and prayer for all of us is that we're asking God to make Himself greater than us that we would ask Him for forgiveness, for mercy, for grace. And that we would ask Him to fill our hearts with love and compassion towards Him and towards others. I want to take a moment and give you a space to, to pray and to see what the Lord may be doing. So what I'll do is I'll invite you to pray with me. I'll be quiet for a few minutes. I know, that's exciting. And give you a moment to pray. 
And I'll finish, in, finish us in prayer, and then our worship team will lead us in celebrating the goodness of God this Palm Sunday. If you would, would you go to the Lord in prayer with me? Father, we come to you today having heard the message of what your son has done. And we come to you asking for you to make that evident in our lives. Lord, we've heard from the scriptures. We've heard of these miracles you've done in the past, what you're doing in our present day, what you will do in the future. And Lord, we would ask you to make these things true and evident before us. Let us rest in this truth that there is only one way to find you. There is only one path towards forgiveness and repentance. And that is by coming to you, acknowledging our sin, confessing this before you, and trusting in the risen Savior. Lord, this is what you sent Jesus to do, to make your way clear, to make the path evident before all mankind. The only way to experience true truth, to experience real life, is through Jesus. So, Lord, make that clear to us today. May we see the glory of the Father through the word and deeds of the Son. May we trust in our risen Savior, Jesus himself, and find forgiveness and hope in this life and for the next. Lord, we're thankful for you. We're grateful for what you're doing. And I pray that you would lead us to worship you in this time. We pray these things in your name. Amen.